Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Diane Sullivan, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. I was going to say on this day after the election, but apparently the election's not over. Diane Sullivan joining us from Medford, Massachusetts, not to be confused with Greater Boston. How'd I do? Eh, terrible. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why do you mean terrible? You're not well, in Medford? Medford is part of Greater Boston. Um, so no, of course you, you always, wait a, do... minute. wait a minute. I always say you're from Boston and you say, no, Trent, I'm from Medford. Now I say you're from Medford and now you're chewing me out for that. No. Is this, is this yeah, how this we're... is going to go? Diane Sullivan. <laughs> Likely, <laughs> but you know, Massachusetts is such a small state. Uh, we, of course, Boston being our largest city that when people, people from Massachusetts, we just say we're from Boston. Um, but yes, so Medford is just north of Boston and uh, literally just a couple of miles. And uh, Greater Boston is the region. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm glad to be here, Trent. Thank you so much. You I know, I was, it was thinking, your idea. Well, because you invited me to be a monthly guest and now I have to remind you that that was your commitment. <laughs> um, no, this time you got you got something on your mind you wanted to share. So, well. I have a few, yeah, I do have a few things going on that I wanted particularly to connect with your audience. But, you know, as I think about and reflect on this election and it's, it's really, um, the election, regardless of who wins, it doesn't change my work, right? I am committed to ensuring that everybody has access to safe, affordable, nutritious food. Mm -hmm. And I go about that, um, I think in a pretty interesting way. And that's, my work is really centered around engaging people with lived experience, right? Like that's why I was able to engage in question three, four years ago in Massachusetts around our cage-free egg law, because I was able to bring my personal experience with hunger uh, to that debate to say, listen, if you force us to purchase cage-free eggs, which of course I learned from farmers is not necessarily um, the best for animal welfare, um, you're going to increase the cost of food. And ultimately that's, that's born on the consumers. And so I take this angle, not in just my anti-hunger work, but I encourage all organizations and all industries really to engage people um, with lived experience. If you want to end hunger, how do you do that if you don't have a conversation with somebody who's experiencing hunger? Same thing with homelessness, mental health, substance abuse, all these issues, the approach needs to be the same and we need to get better at engaging people with lived experience. So regardless of who sits in the White House, my job doesn't change. So... I have a couple of things that are coming up. One in particular that I wanted to um, connect with your listeners on. Um, and really, this is what you, you're doing, right? Sort of bridging the urban and rural divide. And I think you and I, um, and if you, if you can imagine, Trent, uh, we're coming up on our four-year friendiversary uh, because it was in 2016. Four-year friendiversary. Friendiversary. Yeah. I've never used that word before. I like it. I don't think I have either. Oh, no, I think I've seen it on Facebook. Um okay. But yeah, I don't think I've ever used it. But, uh, you know, in 2016, being brought into that campaign really made me realize how far removed we as consumers, particularly, you know, in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. how removed we are from the farm and how 
that space in there um, can be manipulated largely in part by special interest groups like the Humane Society of the United States that we saw here in Massachusetts and other food companies who know that people are willing to pay an extra dollar if they think that the food that they're purchasing is going to keep them and their families healthy. Um, so I see this big divide between, or really when I look at the anti-hunger community and I, I scan the room, who's missing? Two big elements, two big key stakeholders. People who are hungry. And who's the other group? Um, I don't know who the other group is. Farmers and ranchers, the biggest anti-hunger advocates the, in the, the country. The right? ultimate solution to hunger is also missing. Food. So the people that are hungry and the people who produce the food are missing. That's, right. that's problematic. It's extremely problematic. And so I have, for the better part of the last four years, trying to squeeze these two groups together. And and there are definitely pockets um, in the country in certain anti-hunger groups that do reach out to agriculture groups beyond just, do you have surplus food that we you could donate or that we could purchase from you? And so I have, uh, last year I attended for the first time the Hunger-Free Communities Annual Summit in D.C., which is put on by the Alliance to End Hunger. And leaving there, I was invited to join their advisory council, which is a group of people with lived experience. Now, different organizations, you know, they've set up these advisory councils. Some use them in, in different ways. Um, and this one has led to my and two other of my colleagues who serve in this council to be invited back to, uh, they're, they're doing their summit this year, but they'll be doing it virtually. Um, it's going mm -hmm. to be held November 18th and 19th. Now, registration is open and registration is free. I will have a uh, panel discussion with two of my cohorts about how to engage people with lived experience in a meaningful way. Because there are folks, um, oftentimes what I have found is that, uh, you know, folks will try to share the story of others, kind of like a farmer and a rancher. Who, you, right. who can tell the story of a farmer other than a farmer? Nobody's better qualified to tell that story. And so we'll be putting together a panel discussion to really talk can, about what that means. Before you talk about that panel discussion, can I interrupt for a moment? Sure. It's your show. Because one thing, well, apparently today it's your show, which I'm content. <laughs> uh, one thing that you alluded to, you've talked about before, but I want to make sure that the people who are with us today understand is that in the past, people who have organized and uh, given rhetoric to assisting in hunger needs are also those who subscribe to the highest form of food production costs there is. You mentioned cage-free eggs. Uh, typically, they want to talk about this is organic and that's organic and, and all of these mechanisms, which just really lead to a higher cost of food, period. Is that a fair assessment that the, the, the two are usually the same person? Um, well, tough to say. I mean, it's... I, I'm not in the, the, you know, in the grocery carts of uh, my colleagues. But, uh, but, you know, so. my question isn't that. My question is the people who, who have been part of talking about fixing hunger are also those who would say that those things are important. You've experienced that. I mean, yes. Have I experienced that? Absolutely. And, and I think again that there's a disconnect that, does, and it's not, and it's, it's, it's such an interesting phenomenon, really. You know, I've been doing this work, uh, for a long time and I'm seeing right. this shift in organizations where they are looking to hold themselves more accountable to actually listening to the community. Because 
what I've seen for decades now is you have very well-intended folks um, who really want the best uh, for the, the the clients or, you know, the populations that they serve. But kind of like consumers being disconnected from the farm, they're so disconnected from from the real lives and what's actually happening. So there's oftentimes this this thought of if you could just just do what I do, if you would mm-hmm. just live your life like I live my life, your life would be OK. And that doesn't take into account. Well, first, certainly income. Um, and, you know, other barriers that are faced, you know, transportation, trying to get to a grocery store is a problem, uh, for many people. And, you know, and, and interestingly, Trent, um, actually before the Alliance to End Hunger Summit, um, next week I'll be joining our friends at the Animal Agriculture Alliance and I'll be joining them for a webinar, uh, talking to dietitians, right? Because who else plays a huge role in this? Right. And I'll tell you at, at the summit that I attended last year, there was a woman, uh, I don't know if she was a nutritionist or a dietitian, but she was tabling for a nutritionist group. And I approached her, as I always do, um, when I'm at these events, and st- just start probing and talking to people, finding out what they know about agriculture and some of the challenges that that uh, farmers and ranchers have faced in terms of how you grow your food. And so um, she was visibly upset with me and with how when I was explaining, like, listen, I don't need somebody telling me to go and purchase cage-free eggs, first of all, prove that there's an additional nutritional value that would make it worth it for me to spend my money. And as I reflect back to the many times, Trent, and I've told you this many times, when I didn't have enough food to feed my family, I could go scrounge up a dollar and change, go buy a dozen eggs, and at least I knew they had a source of protein right. that night for dinner. Right. And so when you're dealing with folks who just don't understand that reality, um, and of course, don't necessarily understand uh, anything about agriculture production. Um, and they're informing people, uh, you know, we've got a problem there. I've asked my own doctor, what about, you know, organics and GMOs? And she has no clue. And she was yeah. very honest with that about me. I have to go to a break. It is Roll Route. Diane Sullivan joining us from Massachusetts. I can't go wrong in saying that. Medford, Massachusetts, part of the Boston greater area. We are going to remind you that another excellent source, although not as economical, I'll just tell you straight up, Certified Piedmontese creates opportunities for consumers to tap into a very tender supply of beef. We verify that tender supply of beef with Neogen, but you, the cattlemen, get rewarded and closer to the consumer's food dollar. That's what it's all about. The Piedmontese cattle originate from Italy, and Lone Creek Cattle Company has Americanized them very well. That means that they calve easy, they grow well, they perform equal to any other program, and it's on your cows. Piedmontese bulls on your cows. Get details from Marlon Well at LoneCreekCalico.com. It's a certified Piedmontese system. Back with segment two, Diane Sullivan, right after this. Welcome back to... Roll route, Trent Loose alongside Diane Sullivan joining us. Here we were people were afraid we were going to do a election recap. We can't because it's not over. Mm-hmm. Andrew told us you can still vote in Pennsylvania until Friday. How asinine is that? All right, so that'll all shake out. Um, I, I interrupted you when you were talking about the November 11 and 12. Is that right? The virtual summit? Yes. So the 12th, I'll be joining the Animal Agriculture Alliance, uh, speaking to dietitians. They actually, they, um, they've got a good turnout. Um, it mm-hmm. sort of will be standing room only, um, although it's virtually, but I do understand that, um, 
I'll be able to share that video after. Uh, <laughs> I so. love that. Standing room only. Join <laughs> our virtual conference. <laughs> well, they no didn't use the term. <laughs> I, I pulled that term out. But um, so very excited about that. And then the following week on the 19th um, that I'll, I'll be joining the Alliance to End Hunger and my colleagues, Barbie Esquieto from Pennsylvania and uh, Yolanda Gordon from South Carolina. So we'll all of us, you know, we'll, we'll give our perspectives and really on how to support organizations and how to engage people with lived experience. Because, you know, I'll tell you, it's it was such a wonderful experience to work on question three with Brian Klippenstein, formerly Protect the Harvest. Um, and and as you and I have demonstrated that, you know, we and we say this all the time, Trent, we may not agree on a lot politically, um, but one thing that we do agree on is that folks should have access to safe, affordable and nutritious food. And I, and I do acknowledge and um, that people should not tell the farmer how to farm. We agree on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that we shouldn't be telling people how to eat. I mean, of course, we want, you know, education, nutrition, education, ag education. Um, but what we consume and put into our mouths and into our bodies is such a personal choice. Um, because, of course, there's a lot of chatter around, well, maybe, you know, obesity is high among low-income people. How do we get at it? Maybe we control their diets. Um, I do not subscribe to that, you know, paternalistic approach to policy. We really need to engage people um, and help them to understand how they can um, connect to agriculture and really understand how their food is grown. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, thank you. I, I just missed the comment there, but I saw. Yeah, from I did, Ben. Ben lives in yeah. the state that you can vote until Friday, by the way, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Hi, Ben. Um, yeah, I did some uh, great work with the National Pork Producers Council, who also, um, in addition to uh, Mr. Forrest Lucas, who supported the Question 3 campaign, so also um, supported me here in Massachusetts. So uh, I want to change the tenor a bit to a comment that you made. I think it was yesterday, maybe. Yeah, I'm sure it was. You joined us several times through the height of the bottleneck and uh, the bottleneck being when farmers could not get particularly animals to the marketplace. And yeah. uh, there was talk, of, not only animals, but milk, milk, meat, and eggs were subject to not being on store shelves. We are now approaching the end of 2020. Have things from your standpoint, um, in the Boston area, are they normal at the grocery store? Are are prices affected? What, what's the availability and what at the end of the day has happened as a result of the food bottleneck we had in 2020? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, our, our shelves are stocked and they have been, you know, seemingly rather consistently um, for the past several months. As I reflect back onto when the pandemic first hit, I mean, that was a mm -hmm. very traumatic time for so many people, you know, to, to a not have the resources to be able to stockpile food as the CDC was telling us we needed to do simply because you didn't have the resources. And then B, even if you had some resources going into the grocery store and realizing there was nothing there. Um, I mm -hmm. think I told you the story. I had literally picked up the last gallon of milk from my local grocery store, came home. I had placed it on my trunk to grab some other things and the gallon fell. I almost like talk about crying over spilt milk um, right. because it was going to take another trip out to the grocery store, hoping I would find a gallon of milk somewhere. So, you know, in a, in a state that relies so heavily upon you all to feed us, um, I think I've mentioned before that in Massachusetts, we import 90% uh, of the food that we consume. We just, we're not a big production state. Um, how terrifying that is to be, 
disc so disconnected from the source of your food and then to um not understand what's happening you know that shift going uh in in production consumers just didn't understand um and it wasn't i don't think just the supply issues in in the in the supply chain issues we literally had people who had the resources um hoarding food and so i'm hoping that you know as we we definitely have been watching our our numbers rise here in Massachusetts. There's talk about, you know, another shutdown and lockdown. I'm concerned, even though hopefully we worked out some of those hiccups on the on the, on the the supply mm-hmm. side of things, um, we still haven't gotten at the people's fear. And again, those with resources going to stockpile the food and hoarding food from other people. Um, I, w- will that happen again? Hopefully not. Um, but I don't know that folks have learned their lesson. Uh, w- what types of foods were being stockpiled? Because you have to have some level of preservation and stock. I mean, a gallon of milk, unless you freeze it, you can't stockpile it very long. And then not a lot of people like milk after it's been frozen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, I can't tell you what folks were doing because I was one of those families on the other end mm-hmm. um, who was making multiple trips out to the store when I had, you know, some, some resources in hand to go do it. Um, you know, for, and I did eventually get stocked, but it was just, you know, as much as my freezer could handle. And, you know, quite honestly, I've done this in the past. Um, you know, winter time's coming. People can store food outside, you know, quite easily. David's got a great question. David from California, by the way, asked the question, have you advocated for food preservation publicly? Because we all know that you have the ability to buy in larger quantity, preserve your own food and decrease costs significantly. Is that something you've spent a lot of time on? Um, you know what? Honestly, I haven't. Um, you know, I, I was just reminded in, in hearing that question of, of uh, I was a group. Actually, I'm not even going to name the group because I'm not a supporter of them. But uh, there was a, a panel discussion that I had attended and somebody in the audience said, well, you know, if we could just get people to grow their own food, you know, they'd appreciate it a lot more. And immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, so I, you know, I get my children off to school. I go off to work. Maybe I go to my, my part-time job that I'm driving my kids. Or when do I have time to grow food? Right. Um, and so I think that absolutely, when I think about ag education, I think that's something that could be, you know, uh, a part of, right? Um, I've never preserved my own food. Um, I wouldn't know how to do it. I, I joined a canning group because I started my own garden, you know, for the first time this year. And I thought, you know, I grew a whole lot of tomatoes. I don't, I'm not even a fan of tomatoes. Um, but I started, you know, researching, well, how would I, you know, how would I go about, you know, preserving this? So I think that, that it's a part there, but I think that we also need to consider the fact that, um, the time and energy that it takes to preserve food. And do, do people literally have have that that, um, that that extra you know time? So I, I think it could definitely be a part of education. Just as I think that you know the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, oversees the SNAP program, which, in my opinion, is our nation's first line of defense against hunger outside of the farmers who grow our food. Now, if we go into the offices of the USDA. There are opportunities to educate people, right? You can, you can, well, these offices in Massachusetts are not open right now under the pandemic, but we need to find where are people going and how do we get education to them? So could it be that, you know, there are opportunities for classes to teach people how to preserve and care in their food? Absolutely. I think that more connections we can make uh, between people and their food 
is ultimately going to reduce hunger in America. And that's not just about low income people connecting with their how their food is grown. This is about everybody connecting so that we're not being fooled by these food companies, by these misleading labels. And then because when people are fooled, what we know is they then sway the market. Right. So then mm-hmm. those, those are the products that are available to us that are unaffordable to so many. I don't think you can use, uh, I have one minute, by the way, the uh, factor of time in saying that that's why you can't preserve your food because you you can cut your food costs in half if you buy in volume and preserve your own food. By the way, you can buy it cheaply. You can raise it in your own garden. It's kind of a crazy concept. And and I, I think let's, you know, let's keep talking about this. I think, you know, preserving food is, we waste so much, right? Okay, so if you have... Uh, I did this one. My my father was still alive, and he took issue with me, so I had to do the math. I, we went out, and we were given sweet corn. All right, mm-hmm. so then I calculated the time that I shucked the corn. Kelly uh, cut it off, blanched it, put it in the freezer. It cost four times more if you value your time at $10 an hour than it does to go to the store and buy it. That's crazy. I have to go to a break. We will continue the craziness and talk about food preservation and who knows what else. First, I want to remind you about Neogen. Now we're talking about how we precisely grow food so that we use fewer resources to get it done more efficiently because the reality is that we're more efficient than ever anybody could have imagined in this country. And we lead the way. And part of that is looking at things like genomics, using the animals that in particular have those traits that we can emphasize and so that we can produce more with less. It's that simple. That's our mantra. How do we produce more with less? Neogen is making that possible. And that reminds me that I forgot to follow up and find out how you get information about your pets, too, because that was a question from yesterday. It's all about looking at genomics, shining a light on your genetic future. Neogen.com. We'll be back in the second half of Roll Route right after this. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside Diane Sullivan. So uh, coming to us from Boston, so I, I almost sound a bit hypocritical. You have to factor your time, and if you're taking time away from a paying job, and that's $10 an hour, which I assume no job is $10 an hour anymore. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think minimum wage here in Massachusetts is like 12 or 13 Yeah. It is a time consumption enough. thing, but you can, at the end of the day, reduce your cost and be smarter if you do things in, in preservation mode, more like grandma did. Because I assure you, your grandma was involved in food preservation, Diane. Yeah, I think we've, I mean, yeah, we've come a long way just in a couple of generations, you know, into that, um, the convenience of the grocery store, you know, sort of that joke about, you know, well, where does milk come from? You know, and a child says the grocery store, Um, you know, not recognizing there's a cow in that equation there. Um, But, you know, we can get back to, we can get back to that. I think that we can, and there's definitely an interest um, probably because of all the confusion that's out there, there's there's increased interest from people who want to know uh, where their food comes from. I did know there was a um, Rhonda mentioned um, her the our UW Extension 4-H in Wisconsin offers preservation classes. I would love to see more 4-H clubs like in urban settings. Um, I think it's a great way to connect um, children, 
you know, who otherwise, again, will never step foot on a farm and probably in their entire lives, mm -hmm. um, how to connect, uh, how to connect them with food. It doesn't need to be a part of an organized effort like 4-H, though. You, you can we can just pick it up and do it. And quite well, frankly, whether you have 4-H or not, there is an extension program in every single county in this nation that should have access to all of this information. They may not find you. You can find them. True. And and who's going out looking for their 4-H club or their FFA club? Um, you know, I was, we had, I believe it was, must have been in 2017, we had Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue uh, out here and he visited a farm. So, of course, I went and um, I was so pleasantly surprised to see that we had FFA members here in Massachusetts because I didn't know. I recognized the jacket mm -hmm. um, that I had seen in other states. And um of course, you know, made my beeline. I think I was more excited to speak with them than I was to the secretary. Um, but, and, and again, and I think that this is an, we, we have to focus on youth, um, which is why I've said this before too. I appreciate the leadership development that agriculture, the, the time and the money and the energy that is invested. And while I'm able to connect with folks from agriculture, you know, this, this, urban grandmother, uh, you know, who flies out to the Midwest. I make great connections, um, but particularly with the youth and agriculture. I think that there's just, there's something there and this connection that I'm able to make and they hear me and they feel me. And it's, you know, I was thinking about your daughter actually the other day, Trent, you mentioned on a show. Um, can you remind me, what is she studying in college? Uh, well, are you talking about Libby, who is a registered dietitian? That's right. Yes, yeah. I am. And she, she graduated and about, from Texas A&M. This year, right? Uh, no, actually, she graduated two years ago. Okay. So it, I think Th about This year, though, she did get her registered dietitian degree. That's probably what you're, you're thinking of. Okay. So she graduated from college, but then she had to do a, a, an additional program in order to become a certified registered dietitian, and she did accomplish that in 2020. Okay. All right. That's awesome. And, you know, I think about the number of uh, college students studying agriculture that I've connected with mm -hmm. and just the notes of appreciation that I've received after connecting with them and the number who have, have said, listen, I think I'm, I'm going to be switching my, you know, my major to communications in agriculture because now I'm understanding how important it is. Again, I know this as a person with lived experience in poverty. If I am not sharing my own story, somebody else is going to be out there. They're painting me in an awful light so that they can push their, usually a political agenda. Same thing with farmers. When farmers are not sharing their stories, you've got groups, particularly the HSUS, and I, I saw them in full action here in Massachusetts, what they were saying about, you know, demeaning and, I mean, just awful things about, you know, talking about farmers. And while I was giving voice to low-income people in that debate, I certainly was standing up for agriculture as well. Um, so I just feel that the more we can make these connections in these typically unconnected spaces, uh, we'll find that at the end of the day, more and more people want to see that everybody has access to safe, affordable, and nutritious food. And that connects us. So while you were giving us that dissertation, I was actually multitasking, which I can pay attention. Listen to you talk about youth development, how excited you are and standing up for the farmer and against HSUS, who's all about making money. 
have sex, you stay, by the way, is what HSUS stands for. Uh, <laughs> I heard you say that the other day. Well, it's a true terrible. story. They lost. It is terrible. But there it were is. interns that, that Wayne Paselli and uh, Paul Shapiro were using. Yep. Um, yep. If you donate, you can have sex with our interns. That's a brothel. Yeah. Well, Regardless, I mean, Paul uh, Shapiro was here in Massachusetts sexually harassing um, yeah. a, a young woman while he was here working on the campaign. And people continue to give them money. That's why I bring it up. So that's yeah. what you're funding a brothel if you're giving HSUS money. But yeah. in my multitasking, you live yes. in Middlesex County, don't you? Correct. And I went to the county extension website mm-hmm. and I've typed in food preservation. 130 matching items came up on your county's extension program educational effort and outreach much of that it looks like they're relying on penn state and their guide which makes sense i should share resources mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm a bit critical of extension in this regard it's right in front of you all of these things that we've been talking about you could be doing are available to you next door in your county and you don't know it that's the failure yep. of extension is that they have great programs but nobody other than those who participate in the extension know that they're there yeah. And, and you know what, Trent? I bet you I could walk up and down my street, knock on all of my neighbors' doors and say, do you know what extension means in terms of agriculture? Right. And they would go, huh? Because because we don't know. Um, so, yeah, well, thank you for looking that up because I never would have thought to even look Middlesex County extension. Like it just and, you know, and I'll tell you because. By the way, I had to look up your county, too, because I didn't want to interrupt you, but I. It's easy to find all that. That's how yeah. much that's, that's the resource you have available to you. People just need to use it. Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind, I am in the, the Northeast, um, in the Boston area, and I'm right next to Cambridge, um, where, you know, you know, what's located there is Harvard, right? I've been in meetings with folks from Harvard who, as they're looking at health and its connection to nutrition, there, uh, you know, there's a, there was a big push. I don't know if it's still, you know, under the pandemic, whether or not it's still a priority for them, but they want to put, you know, they want a sugary beverage tax because they feel that if they disincentivize soda by slapping a tax on it, that low-income people maybe won't drink it and won't be obese. Well, first of all, low-income people don't drink any more soda than, you know, others. And... Again, it it speaks to. Is that a true story? Because I, I think that, I might have fallen prey to that myself. If if you could verify that low income people drink no more soda than the average person, non low income person. Yeah, you know what? I think there's studies that go both ways. Okay. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you'll see there's there's not much of a difference. And so, all this time, all this energy to talk about a sugary beverage tax mm. again um that's that's very paternalistic it's and first of all it's a regressive tax which is exactly what i called question three here in massachusetts where through regulation you're forcing people to pay more so it's a regulatory tax which is um not my style of doing things i'm not i'm not um i disagree with sin taxes and um so <clears throat> excuse me the the point here is that yeah, you yeah have because these- at the end of the day, Diane, when you talk about a sin tax, somebody's God saying that the sin that's not a sin. Drinking sugar is a sin. 
eating meat's a sin, whatever. Somebody's making that decision. That should be right. up to the person, not some entity. Absolutely. It, like I said, you know, what you put in your mouth is so personal to you. Nobody should have authority over that. Um, you know, again, education around healthy food as opposed to, you know, foods that aren't so healthy. Absolutely. We, we need all of that. And so, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm in this area where you have folks. And again, I, I think everybody, you know, wants to see people healthy. Um, but, you know, through the dictation of diet. So, so when I think about the colleges and universities around me, um, I don't necessarily consider them partners because, again, they haven't engaged people like me. So unfortunately, when I think about the colleges and universities, I'm kind of like, stay over there. Let me do my thing over here. If I need you to do some research, we'll have that conversation. But I don't think about extensions. You know, I, I just it just is not something. In fact, extension wasn't something that I even heard about um, until I started visiting the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but also animal husbandry. I, I've joked about this before. I, I didn't know what that husbandry meant. And I had this vision of like chickens and, you know, with their veils, like weddings, you know, wedding bells. Like <laughs> we were so, you know, and, and, and I'm not ashamed of that. You know, right. my closest connection to agriculture was helping my grandfather uh, lay the manure for his victory garden. Um, other than that, food for me has been purchased in a grocery store. And I'm not ashamed of that. I see, you know, I hear a lot of farmers and ranchers and I think that, you know, sometimes we we make these snap judgments about these people who we might not necessarily agree with or whatever. Um, But we've got to get through that. Like stop judging urban folks because we don't know where our food comes from. Like we got a lot going on too. (laughs) Uh, So I just want to, I have one minute again. I just want to replay this. You did not know extension existed until you came to the Midwest. Correct. And in your county, just miles from your house, you have a Middlesex Extension office. And you Correct. didn't know that. Did not know. And, and to Alan's point, who says, sadly, a lot of university systems don't want to promote extension in agriculture. That's a major failure on our part. And by the way, your extension program is funded by your tax dollars in your county. This is the failure that we're talking about right here because all of these programs are locally available to everybody and people don't know it. Right. Here's what also you don't know is that the animal rights community, and this has been the underlying thought and actually what brought our, what'd you call that, friendiversary? Four years ago mm-hmm. together was the attack from animal rights organizations. They say they want to just have a better treatment for the animal, but it's really about removing animals from mm-hmm. human ownership. And they go about it in a way of working with law enforcement, local law enforcement, and misleading them because they don't know what they don't know. The stand at Paxton County on Netflix brings that all to living color. You can watch that movie, and it's the other side finally being told. The stand at Paxton County. Forest Films did a fantastic job. We've got one segment left. We're all out right after this. Welcome back to Rural Route, Trent Luce, alongside Diane Sullivan. Apparently, Diane, you don't need to go to Des Moines to learn all of these resources. Jody is pointing out Worcester. Is that Worcester County next door to you? Worcester. That is not Worcester. That is Worcester or Worcester. (laughs) Apparently, I'm not from Massachusetts. Yeah, that's Worcester. Um, Yeah. so, yeah, this is fantastic. I'm I'm glad to see that you have 
viewers and listeners here in Massachusetts. So, um, actually, we have them all around the world. Yeah, anyway, that's fantastic. What's the answer to the food policy going forward? Well, number one is we've got to engage people with lived experience and hunger. Um, okay. You know, we we have to stop um, sharing stories. You know, hunger. I hmm, hunger is very traumatic. Um, you know, there's, oh, I've worked all day. I haven't had an opportunity to eat. I'm hungry. Um, then there is the, my cupboard is bare. My children are hungry. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off today, the next day, the following mm-hmm. week. Um, and that level of, uh, uncertainty, uh, brings a certain level of trauma. And so when I'm in the room, and one, I'm very excited actually about what I'm seeing now. I've been beating this drum of engaging people with lived experience for a long time. And because I've seen it work, uh, you know, I've experienced homelessness. I went to do uh, eviction prevention and, and that was great work because you're able to help one family, you know, at a time. But then there are these broader policy issues that are having an impact. You know, why are we spending money on shelter? Could we be investing that money in housing? So, I started to really look at uh, policies and realized that people like myself without lived experience were not in the room. And these conversations are happening like, you know, where solutions, I don't know, you know, people come up again with the best of intentions, come up with these solutions or uh, as with question three, they try to solve for a problem that doesn't exist. Right. Because in their minds, they're so disconnected from the issue that, They'll see, oh, this is a problem. We've got to fix this. But the people who are experiencing it are saying, no, no, actually, that's not a big problem. This is a big problem. Go focus Mm -hmm. on that. But we don't have the power. We don't have, you know, the case in point. You talk about Massachusetts and you've made your fair blunder, share of blunders when it comes to laws increasing the cost of food. But the glaring example is California, who continues to pile regulation on top of regulation forcing food producers to comply and jump through new hurdles and spend more money accomplishing nothing other than increasing the cost of food. Meanwhile, the people who are signing up for free stuff because they can't afford to buy what they need is going through the roof too. And I wish that your sentiment could just be actually what we need to do is get people in California that have have lived experiences. I've stolen that term from you now. And get them empowered to say, stop with the foolishness. Yep. Absolutely. This, this is not about improving the welfare of the animal. This is just yep. b- about making it tougher to comply with mm-hmm. all of the lived experiences that we have. Yep. And and then connecting that, like, because of this policy, my life is that much harder, right? It's it's that right. much more, you know, even if somebody's receiving SNAP, I, I you know, things like question three or Prop 12 in California they devalue the purchasing power of the SNAP dollar. And that's the last thing that we need to be doing, as we saw in April, um, the highest increase to, to grocery store costs in 50 years. Um, and, you know, these... But how do I connect to, to folks in California, right? Like, I think that... I, I just want to do an amendment before you connect to the folks in California. <laughs> you mentioned question three, which was the ballot initiative in Massachusetts that engaged you in the process. Prop 12, for those that may not know, is the California initiative saying that if you don't comply with California standards, 
which are not standards. You don't comply with California standards in animal care. You can't sell your food into California. 38 million consumers. Obviously, people want to sell food into there. The biggest buzz that I hear right now, particularly in the animal production world of milk, meat, and eggs, is how can I become Prop 12 compliant? You're forcing farmers to do things that just contributes to making food tougher for people to get a hold of with these lived experiences and that's why you and i need to find these people not only in california Mm -hmm. but california is the glaring example to empower those that need the assistance Mm -hmm. yeah because let's remember you know what happened here in massachusetts really had nothing to do with massachusetts right like there was one farm that would be impacted by question three um, and anybody who would meet these farmers or the chickens that they raise that I had the opportunity to do could see that these farmers care about their chickens. Uh, they're well fed. They're well cared for. What What is the problem here? There was no problem here in Massachusetts. It was about this group trying to regulate farmers and other states. Um, so, you know, just as they're making those connections, we also need to make those connections. But, you know, again, part of the problem is is that when I walk into the room, first of all, I make everybody uncomfortable. Um, if you haven't noticed it, it doesn't matter if you're on the right, the left, if you're, you know, center, it doesn't matter. Uh, because I speak truth to power and, you know, my truth is my truth and nobody can deny for me the fact that I can't even count the number of times that I had to put my children to bed on an empty belly. Nobody knows that story, um, or can tell it like I can tell it. And these are the stories. Now, I don't want to put my trauma on public display, but mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like that's what I have to do to get people to really understand what's really going on here. Um, because when you make it more and more difficult for people uh, to afford their food, we're increasing hunger. And, and sometimes just the way that people shop can contribute to hunger. And they don't know that. If you're fooled by these labels, if you're willing to pay an extra $100 in your groceries because everything's got a non-GMO or organic label, you may think, and, and maybe sometimes it works as a panacea for you and your family. Maybe you are healthier because you believe that that's what that food is supposed to do. But I guarantee you, as you're spending more money on that food and you're swaying the market, you are doing damage to entire communities, to families who cannot afford to eat or because... Again, these food companies do such a good job in their marketing that folks are fearful if they buy the conventional alternative to, you know, this pepper, then I'm poisoning my family. Uh, we got to get at that somehow. I don't know. How, do you regulate how these companies market? You know, some truth in marketing I heard Andrew talking about um, on your show yesterday. Yep. Something needs to happen because the lack of any sort of intervention is increasing hunger in America. And there's a direct connection there. Well, also, we had the comment that came and said, we just need critical thinking. People need to be less susceptible to those marketing gimmicks. They'll go yeah, away I mean, if people don't fall prey. I didn't yeah, mean, I mean to rhyme, but hey, it's a nice day to have them. Yeah, but, you think. know, I'm not going it, to. It, it took <laughs> me some time to, to understand all of the nuances here and what's really been going on. Um, time and energy. And, and then quite honestly, I was, I was getting paid to do it right to, you know, to, to, when I joined the campaign, I was getting paid to, you know, to, to, to do that. And, and I understand what you're saying. Then we need to make it, um, easy. How do we make it easy for people? How do we help people understand, to understand that this is necessary? Well, Number one, extension does a better job locally. That would help, but I can't control that either. But taking something, you mentioned what was said yesterday and, Obviously, this is happening in the UK today, so it's an issue. 
you know as well as I do, Diane, that the term uh, free range has marketing appeal. People think that's cool. Well, we've had a case of avian influenza in the UK, and the birds that are not in barns, those farmers today are feeling very uh, vulnerable because they have no protection. The, the farmers who have their birds in a barn have a level of protection from a disease that will wipe you out. And yet, mm-hmm. if you were to market this, you, you can a- absolutely see where people fall prey to free range. Because what, what free range actually means is that they're susceptible to the weather. They're susceptible mm-hmm. to a coyote or a badger, whatever the predator is. And they're more susceptible to disease. That's yeah. what free range means. Yeah. And that's definitely what I've come to learn. And I didn't just, you know, hear it from people. I was able to, uh, the, this one farm that would be impacted, so they had... Um, their egg-laying hens in one barn, and they had their broiler chickens on the floor in another barn. Um, and I visited both barns. And, of course, it smelled like a barn. Um, but I could – there was a distinct difference, um, even in the smell, with when I – and I tell you, these hens seemed – I don't know what the happy hen looks like, but they looked like happy hens. They were – like every, every one of them sort of, when I walked in, looked to sort of greet me in – all very much sort of standard in size. They I weren't saw greeting weird. you, Diane. They were assessing whether you were going to eat them. Because well, their instincts are survival. And so they're checking to see, is that a predator? Do we need to worry about it? That's all they're worried about. Okay. So then they saw that I wasn't a predator. So they started singing with me. Correct. But, you know, I saw where, it, and again. <laughs> were they singing a, cowboy lullabies? <laughs> yeah, although, you know what? I actually, I, chicken and, and eggs are like my favorite. Um but <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, so, <laughs> but but I'll tell you what I did see was the eggs that you know were were laid, rolled off, um, and you know were able to be collected just by you know the farmer coming mm-hmm. through. They weren't sitting in a field being pooped on by you know another hen, um, and it was separated from the waste. I was so impressed with the system that they had in there. And then I walk into the broil chicken again. It's a fine system, but. I could tell that, you know, it was just a little bit of a different setting. And in my mind, I would prefer my hen be, you know, my egg come from a caged hen. And I've, I've had friends, you know, in, in other countries that I've talked with where um, eggs from caged hens, that's where you pay the premium because they understand the safety and all of that, that, you know, that um, that comes with uh, a, a caged egg. So um, there is a lot of education, again, and I was very skeptical when I was first approached about um, joining question three, um, very skeptical, but I, I took the time to educate myself and I was floored when I realized. Yes. One minute warning. What do you want us to most know? Okay. Um, you know, just despite what happens with this election, um, let's acknowledge that uh, we need to do a better job at making sure that everybody in America has access to free, um, not free, uh, but affordable, safe affordable and nutritious food. I know yeah. you're going to, you're going to get, on that I, one I, I can't <laughs> survive if you're going to have my food free. That was a Freudian um, slip right there, Diane Sullivan. It, well, it was. And, and I, I do see food as a basic human, right? Um, as I do, you know, housing, uh, we, we've got to meet people's basic needs, um, or help them meet their basic needs, uh, so that they can really build from that foundation. And food is, is such a critical element there. You can't have a healthy body or a healthy mind without appropriate nutrition. Um, so I'm just on that path. Let's keep in these conversations. Um, let's keep politics out of it as much as we can. 
And when we're talking about feeding people, because it is, it's, it's not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not an urban issue or a rural one. This is one for all of us to, to tackle. So I always appreciate it. of happiness. That's a yeah. constitutional right for sure. Diane Sullivan, always a pleasure. We'll do it again soon. Sounds good. All right. We successfully <laughs> journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. Both Diane and myself remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.